0: Morning. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to James 1. James 1, we'll begin reading at verse 19 and go to the end of the chapter. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into The perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, begins being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would quieten our hearts this morning. I pray, God, that we would examine and search our hearts in the light of your word this morning. And, Lord, if there is any sin that has gone non-confessed Lord. we haven't confessed it Lord. we haven't repented from it lord i pray that you would help us to do that right now that lord we would come before you prepare our hearts to hear from you this morning that's our desire and that lord as we have just read here in the text that we just wouldn't hear but lord that we would be doers of your word that we would apply the truths that we hear this morning in our lives That you would be the, I pray, Lord, that you would get the glory for all that's done here this morning in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. We're going to finish up James chapter 1 this morning. We've been looking at, James has been talking about what do we do when we go through and how do we handle trials. Last week, we we talked about what do we do and how do we handle temptations that come our way. Uh, This week, or today, this morning, What we're going to look at as we wrap up James is our response to God's word. How are we to respond? Chad Walsh, an American poet and theologian in the early 1900s, wrote this. Millions of Christians live in sentimental haze, prophetic precision. This is what he said. Most Christians, or many Christians, live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the light of stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing, demanding little more than lip service, so a few harmless platitudes. It is much safer, from Satan's point of view, to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity, so as long as to protect him from the real disease. You see, part of Satan's strategy for you is to come to the conclusion that the Bible is the end of the process. You see, you won't, he won't try to get the believers to disregard or discard the Bible, but disregard it. To learn it but not believe live it. He's even satisfied if the Christian believes it, if so, as long as he doesn't behave it. And that's the problem. That's the issue and the problem that we face here today. We want the thrill of feeling right, but not the inconvenience of being right. And here we see in the very beginning of verse 19 that James gives here a command. Effectively, he is saying, look, you need to know this. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Get this. You need this. While it's true that everyone ought to be quick to listen as a general rule in life, James is talking about listening eagerly and readily and primarily to the Word of God. You're facing difficult trials. You're facing dangerous temptations. The point is, who are you listening to? Maybe the reason you aren't passing the test or overcoming the temptations is because God's Word's the last place you go. We listen to everyone else and everything else, and finally, maybe, we listen to our divine tutor, God's Word. You remember how often the Lord would stop and ask his audience, the Pharisees and the religious rulers, the leaders of that time, the question Have you not heard? Have you not read? The obvious answer, of course, is they had heard, they had read, but they weren't listening. Their problem wasn't that they were hard of hearing. Their problem was they were hard of listening. And quite frankly, we have that same problem today. On a Practically speaking, you ever fly? If you ever do any flying, if you ever do a lot of flying, you know what happens in the very beginning of your flight. A flight attendant will go up front and go through uh, how to put on the seatbelt how to put on the oxygen mask in case the cabin pressure changes, and how to take the seat cushion and make sure you know that it turns into a floating device in case you need it. It's all comforting. But as she's going, or he or she is going over all of that, if you do a lot of flying, you just tune them out. You, you, you really have no, they're just, they're just up there and they're speaking and you're not listening, truly listening to what they're having to say. They're the most ignored people on the flight. But be 30,000 feet up in the air and go through some bad turbulence. And all of a sudden, you're looking at that little plastic card in front of your seat. What what did she say? What did they say do? What, what, What am I supposed to do now this is happening? James says, how do you plan to grow up if not survive, if you're not going to listen? There is more turbulence ahead of you than you can imagine. A smooth flight through life is a myth. And here's the point. If you want to grow up, don't be eager. Listen. Don't be eager to listen to everyone first. First and foremost, listen to God. Listen to His Word, who is able to equip you for life. The adjectives "quick" and "slow" here do not describe an action, but an attitude. And the context is a reference to being slow to speak means you are slow to talk back. That's the idea here. And frankly, you, you may not like what God's Word is saying. You might want to argue with God, if not audibly, but in your hearts and minds. And keep in mind, the context here in the first century, where the early church services were informal, often the listeners would speak up and even debate with the preacher. And this seems to be exactly what happened in Paul's time and when he mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith. He said, he did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He vigorously opposed our teaching, literally our words. Can you imagine Paul preaching the truth and Alexander standing up and verbally opposing him? God's words are inconvenient. They are uncomfortable and they are demanding. And we are tempted to talk back. And you see the implied discretion here. It begins with not listening. It proceeds to talking back. And finally it explodes in anger in verse 20. You understand that James is saying here. Anger with God does not bring about right living before God. It hijacks the process. In other words, when you are angry with God for the turbulence in your life, you're going in the opposite direction. Don't forget who he is writing to. James is writing to Christians in verse 1 that we see that were dispersed. Among, they, were, they were being persecuted, literally running for their lives. And everything James has said so far has been easy to say and much harder to hear. I think it's it's funny how he addresses them here, even in the verse 19, and he talks to them and calls them his beloved brothers and sisters. In other words, I I love you, so don't get mad at me when I tell you the truth, what I'm about to say to you. Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 4. He says, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Don't shoot the messenger. Here's James' point. An angry spirit is never a teachable spirit. And then he talks about and 21 and following, how to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. What are we to do? If you'll notice here in, in verse 21, the word James uses here to, for filthiness is the, is the word um, is used for both dirty clothing and moral defilement. Put aside things and actions that are morally defiling, as he's saying. I found it interesting that the root word for filthiness is was used by the Greeks to refer to wax in someone's ear. Which fits the context perfectly here, what we're looking at this morning. In other words, sin in our lives, which we refuse to put off, acts as wax in our ears, preventing us, preventing the word, the truth, from reaching our hearts. Which, another way of saying, whenever you confess and forsake, Sin, you're effectively clean out your ears so that you can hear from God, hear His word. The word James uses here for wickedness has the idea of a moral evil and corruption, which may be which which may never be expressed outwardly. It may be that which goes under the surface, maybe the hidden sins that doesn't come up. One of the marks of maturing in the Lord is that you are growing more and more troubled over sin. You are aware of the sin in your life and you're viewing it how God views it. I read of an incident in India, perhaps much like the setting in the first century that we just talked about, of an unbelieving skeptic was listening to an evangelist preach about the burden of sin. And he interrupted the evangelist and sarcastically said, I feel no burden of sin. Tell me, how heavy is it? Eighty pounds? Ten pounds? The evangelist answered with a question, Tell me, if you lay a hundred pounds on a corpse, will it fill the load? And the man responded, Well, no, of course not. It's dead. And the evangelist said exactly, That spirit, too, is dead, which fills no load of sin. James isn't talking about here one who is spiritually dead, but the Christian. What James is trying to get us to see is that preparation is vital in our Christian walk. We're to make sure that we are ready to approach the Word of God, that we have confessed, that we have repented of the present sin that it lies within our lives. I have never gone through heart surgery. Some of you in here may have. My dad had pretty major heart surgery a few years ago, and it can be an emotional time. But you know as well as I do that no doctor is going to take you into his clinic, see that you have a bad heart, and say, okay, we're going to open you up right here, right now, in my clinic, in my office, and we're going to work on you. That simply doesn't happen. He schedules you quickly for a hospitalization. And so you go and you take several days ahead of time and they put you on a strict diet and a strict observation with strict medicine and you do not fudge on that. You follow exactly what they are saying and telling you to do. And you're carefully observed by the physician and his staff and they very carefully prepare the right kind of anesthesia and and, and germ-free environment with scrubs and gloves and washing their hands and the physician and the operating room and his skilled assistants and they're all in there and then they begin... To work on your heart. You don't go into it with dirty hands. That's what James is saying here. You've got to prepare. Remove, confess, repent the sin that's there that we may hear from him. One Greek expositor in his study, where, in a book study in the book of James, said this. A Christian who attended prayer meeting every week in his little church, every time... He would confess the same things, and then he would close by saying, Oh, Lord, the cobwebs have come between you and me. Please clear them away. Every week he'd confess the same sins and then say, Lord, please clear away the cobwebs. Finally, an older Christian prayed right afterwards and said, Lord, would you have him kill the spider? Not a bad idea. Deal with the sin. Clean house. It says receive the implanted word. How do you receive something that's already implanted within you? The planting of the seed has already taken place. The living word of truth, like the seed, has been buried in the soil of your believing heart at conversion. So receive it means to welcome it, nurture it, water it, tend to it, take care of it. James writes, and you will be saved and rescued. It will rescue your soul. Not necessarily talking about in the context here of rescued far as going to heaven, but rescued through life. So, so once we have properly prepared ourselves of taking in the Word of God, in verses 22 through 27, James talks about our proper response to the Word. And he breaks it down into three areas. In verse 22, it contains a command. And verse 23 through 25 contain an illustration. And in 26 through 27 contain an application. Look what he says here in the command in verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceive in yourselves. Jesus probably had the most graphic illustration of what James had in mind when he preached in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Let me read what he said. And great was the fall of it. James here is talking about the word doer has the idea. And he's talking about someone who is creatively serving the Lord. He's not talking about obeying with bad attitude or doing things at a bare minimum. He's talking about maturing believer who gives his creative best. Who is passionate. Who is a desire to serve God with excellence is the idea Immaturity says, I'll get the job done with the least amount of energy and thought. I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but not one thing more. Maturity says, what can I do next? How can I do it better? And the original word here for hearer has the idea, it's the same word the Greeks used for student in a university who is auditing a class. It actually refers to an attentive listener. An auditor is someone who sits down in a class with other students and has the same advantages of learning and can benefit from what he hears in class. The difference between the audit student and the credit student is they have the same advantages but doesn't have but they don't have the same responsibilities. He doesn't have to take the midterm or the final exam or the pop quizzes doesn't have to turn in the homework or stay up late doing reading assignments. He doesn't have to turn in the term paper to see the teacher examining his thinking. The problem is that though at the end of his education, the, auditor, the audit student cannot become a practicing lawyer or engineer or nurse or teacher. They are not licensed to practice because they never did the assignments they want to they want the benefits without the responsibilities they want to get credit for being in class but that's where they wanted it to stay they didn't want any homework and this is the person who attends church but never joins they want the benefits of church without the responsibilities this is the person who knows Christ that has not publicly testified So, that relationship, to that relationship through believers' baptism, that would be uncomfortable. That would require to get up in front of people. That would mean I'd have to act and not just behave or just believe. The immature believer wants whatever he learns in church to stay in church, whatever he sees in the Bible to stay in the Bible. Don't give me any homework, don't give me any late night assignments. I just want to listen. I will audit my way through trials, temptations, and trouble. And James is saying if you want to be able to practice your faith like a practicing doctor or a practicing nurse, you can't audit God's Word. You can't take it or leave it. And then he gives here in the next few verses an illustration to better illustrate his point and what he's saying here what it says. For anyone here is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently in his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. I'm, I'm willing to, I'm pretty sure that most of you in here got up this morning. And one of the first things you did was look at yourself in a mirror. We do it every single day. It's out of habit. We get up and we look in the mirror. And when we look in the mirror in the morning, oftentimes we see things that we don't like. We see things that need fixing. We see things that needs attention. And so we do that. But maybe this morning you got up and you looked at yourself in the mirror. And you looked and you said, wow, that needs some work. And you turned off the lights, hopped in your car, and you came to church. You say, that's silly. No, of course, that's not what we do. But that's the point James is making here. He says, if you're here of the word and not a doer, in essence, this is what you're doing. When we look at the mirror, it shows our imperfections. It shows our blemishes. It shows the hairs that are out of place. And God's word does the same. A physical mirror doesn't show what kind of person you are; it shows what kind of face you have. God's spiritual mirror shows what kind of person you are. It points out the ugliness of sin. It shows us where we have failed and where we we can make it right. It, it shows us the beauty and the and the, be- the beauty of the gospel and how holy God is and how unholy we are. It convicts. It rebukes. It it, it reproves us. And we can look at God's word and we can see all of this and we can be convicted and feel convicted and know that the sin is there. And before a holy God, we come up short. But what are we doing with that? Uh, Is it affecting us? Is it changing us? And what's more important? There's not one of us in here probably that would look in a mirror and say, wow, that needs fixing. And you would fix it. But what's more important, our physical or spiritual health? Are we doing that with God's word when we come to him? In verse 25, he goes on to say that if we are not just hearers but are doers, we are blessed. We're doing. May we be like David in Psalm 139. Who says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. The president of his own company, employing several hundred workers, was preparing for an extended business trip. Before leaving, he sat down and wrote a lengthy letter detailing projects he wanted accomplished in his absence, clients he wanted to be contacted, and tasks that he expected his employees to do while he was away. He finished it and put the letter into the company post office box, rode to the airport, and boarded his flight. On his return several months later, he immediately noticed the grounds were unkept. The grass obviously had not been cut in weeks, and the lawn was littered. The scrubs the, the, the shrubs and the trees needed trimming, and the doors were marked with handprints. He parked his car in, car and he hurried inside immediately. He, he saw his employees lounging around in their chairs, drinking coffee and talking, feet propped on their desk, and most weren 't dressed in office attire. A ping pong table had been set up in the middle of the room. an array of video games littered the floor. His arrival went unnoticed. Angrily, the CEO called a meeting for an entire management staff. And when he had assembled everyone together, he began his tirade. He said, I can't believe what I am seeing. Everything is completely different than what I expected it would be. What's going on? Didn't you get my letter? Their faces brightened and some of them replied, yes, sir, we did. We loved that letter. We read it almost every day. In fact, one man uh, said, I've even memorized several paragraphs of your letter. It's a terrific reading, others chimed in. Another spoke saying, sir, we've we've organized some study groups. We've gathered at least once a week and read and reread portions of your letter to make sure we understand it all dumbfounded, the president asked, but did you finish the projects? Did you call the clients? Did you do the things I asked you to do? And at that time, everyone looked down and was ashamed that one man finally spoke on behalf of the group saying, no, sir, you see, we're, we're still studying your letter. You see, our problem is not our failure to understand certain biblical truths, but to live the truth we understand. We all have been entrusted and received a letter from God, inspired word of God. Are you content merely reading it, to study it, perhaps memorize it? Are you going to put it into practice? It's one thing for believers to say, we believe the Bible. But it's quite another to behave as though we believe. James is challenging the church. And then then and now, the danger is to read the letter, hear a sermon, read a devotional, memorize passage of scripture and say that there it takes care of my spiritual growth for the day, for the week, for the month, for the year. No change, no difference. You tell me you love me, but you act as though you don't. That is the theme of the book of James and what he's saying. But James says, you may be asking, what are some, some specific examples? What, what are some ways, what looks like real Christianity? And he explains that to us in the, in the last two verses here, in verses 26 and 27. He gives us three examples. We're going to look at these, and we'll be done this morning. The first he gives here in verse 26 is that of the tongue, of our conversation, and how we talk to people. He gives an illustration here about bridle. He says bridle, uh, his tongue, uh, has the idea of horse, uh, a, a bridling a horse, reining in a horse. A horse during this time was, uh, was valuable. Uh, they, they would use them for transportation and for work. But an unbridled horse, a horse that had no control, not only was not good, but it also was dangerous. So how would they control it? Well, they had to rein it in put a rein on him and and take the reins and they could move the horse wherever they wanted him to go to control the horse. James goes as far as far as to say if we are not controlling our tongue if we just say whatever we want to say when we want to say it then he questions our own faith. Is it genuine? Is it real? Because what comes out of here is often what's thought of here and then results that comes of what's in the heart. And we'll learn more about our speech and our conversation in chapter 3. James dives a little deeper into that. And so when we get to chapter 3, we'll look more into that. But he talks about first here our conversation. Secondly, he talks about our compassion. Look at verse 27. He talks about visiting the orphans and the widows and their affliction. Keep in mind, James is not telling people that if they want to go to heaven, They have to visit orphans and widows and clean up their life. He's not talking to people who need to be saved, but people who already are saved. James is saying that we need to measure our maturity in the light of these things. In other words, if you're growing in Christ, in Christianity, your Christianity will radically impact not only your conversation with others, but your compassion toward others. There there are not only, he gives two classes here, but there's not only two classes in our society that need compassion. He mentions here widows and orphans. And during these times, these were the most people, these were the people that needed the most help. Uh, The orphans obviously were left uh, with no parents, no one to look after them, no one to come in. And the, and the widows, there was no one there to look after them. They were not able to take care of themselves. They were looked down on in society as weak. And said so needed someone to come along. Understand they didn't have government assistance. They didn't have anything like that back then. And if you look at history, all throughout history, it was the Christians who, who established hospitals, who founded orphanages who started rescue missions and built houses for the poor and opened kitchens for the hungry. It was Christians who, who charted societies for the poor and, and homeless and who built infirmities for the mentally handicapped and the physically disabled and the elderly. It was Christians who led the charge and did these things for the people in their society. James is living in a pre-Christian period of time, and the church has been birthed in a culture where the value of human life was at all time low. Abortion and infanticide was was universally accepted. One Roman historian who died around the same time James was writing this letter wrote, We drown children who at birth were weakly and physically impaired. Infanticide is the killing of children after birth. It was so common that one historian blamed the population decline of Greece upon this practice. Infant girls were especially vulnerable simply because they would not be able to care for the parents or carry on the family property through their inheritance. In Greece, it was rare for even a wealthy family to have one daughter. So the first century church began going around at night collecting and raising these children. Why? Because they saw the value of every human life. Because life is the creation of God, and we are created in his image. And as Christians, we are expected to help those who can't help themselves. There are a lot of people in our society, there's a lot of people in our community that need help. How are we doing? How are we doing in our, com- our passion compassion of helping those who need help? Listen, this is not a social gospel. This is the real gospel. This is real Christianity. What James is saying here. It shouldn't be up to the government to provide the needs of the people. It should be us helping the people that are in need. That's what we are called to do. Have compassion on our fellow people here in our community. Paul wrote in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. And the third example he gives here is that of our character. To be one, he says, to keep oneself unstained by the world. What does he mean? The word translated to "world" here is the word that refers to the world system, the world's way of thinking. You may immediately think, well, that's impossible, and you're right. The world rubs off on us. But the verb tense here in the present, which again means there is a regular daily attention to the spots that get on our spiritual clothing. It's the idea. That's why we need to take, take our hearts and our minds regularly to the divine cleaning system. Repentance and confession. One author wrote, I know a cleaner who can take care of the worst possible stains you'll ever have. God specializes in stain removal. I don't think James is talking about here just any kind of stain. I believe James is thinking specifically within the context of these verses and what he's talking about here. Because it's so easy for us to become stained with the, the value system of our world. It's easy for us uh, that that life doesn't matter. Uh, Poor people are probably getting what they deserve. Orphans aren't your concern. Widows aren't your responsibility. You serve only those who can pay you back. Is the temptation that we have if we're not careful. But James is saying that is not real Christianity. That's not pure religion in the sight of God. In other words, we choose to demonstrate the gospel of grace with humility with our tongues, compassion with our resources, and purity with our lives. If our lives were televisions, we'd want the world to be able to watch us and hear us, both sight and sound, hearing and seeing a demonstration of the gospel that has radically impacted everything about us, our conversation, our compassion, our character. So we look at our life. Is it pattern of holy obedience? Are, are we doers, not just hearers of the word? What what people see on the outside is it reflection of what truly is on the inside? How do you react to trials? How do you react in temptation? How do you respond to the word? True faith is a belief that behaves. So, what about you this morning? Have you prepared your heart to hear from God? How are you responding to His Word? Would you say that your conversation, your compassion for others, your character before God represents the true marks of true Christianity? James has given us a lot to think about and to ponder this morning, and questions that we should all ask ourselves. My prayer is that we would do just that that we would examine our lives to see where we stand before God and that we would repent in the areas that we need repentance and that we would once again hear from him to hear the voice of God through his word let's pray Lord we we thank you again for this wonderful privilege of opening up your word and, and seeing what you have for us this morning. And Lord, as we, as we come to you in prayer this morning, help us to examine our hearts. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we stand before you. You know how cold our hearts may be. Help us to be honest enough with ourselves to know, confess, and repent in the areas that we have fallen short. We don't want to be Christians on the outside in name only. But God, that, that we would have a burning desire to love, serve, and enjoy you more and more each day. Lord, people, their time in here. As we wrap up the service, may all the said and done bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.